Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Today, we're going to be continuing our series called Chosen. We're going to do a message called Chosen for Life in John chapter 3, one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the Bible, John 3.16. And I'm going to pray for us before we get to that, that passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, that we can come into your presence and that you would come to us. Every other religion in the world is trying to figure out a way to get to you, and you told us that you came to us, that you sent your son for us, that you loved us, that you'd die for us intentionally, that you'd become flesh and that you would die, we would never dream up. Thank you. I pray that you'd save somebody today. I pray there's not a person that will hear my voice today that does not receive eternal life or already have eternal life or know more what it is to walk in that eternal life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have we all had the same experience where you talk about something and then the next time you get online, it's like they were listening to you? <laughs> oh, I think I'm going to get a new pair of shoes and all of a sudden there's a banner, Nike on the side, Adidas on the top. Like they're looking, all the shoes are being sold or you say, you know what, I just need a vacation. I'm going to go to the Bahamas someday. And all the banners are blue waters, $99 flights from Southwest. Have you, ever, have you had that experience? Kind of creepy, isn't it? They're always listening to us. Now, as a pastor, when the congregation is listening to you, that's kind of encouraging, though. It's not creepy. And y'all have been listening. Because as I share different movies that I watch, Netflix experiences that I have, I've had several of you write me and say things like, Pastor, you liked this, so I think you need to watch this. It's like, you're my Netflix. Like, Netflix, everyone's so like, since you watched, maybe you'll like it. I'm like, do you guys think I'm crazy? What do you mean? Trying to catch a killer. What are you trying to say here? And so I get some of those, and sometimes you send me stuff, and I'm like, I think you're weird. And then sometimes I get stuff, and I'm like, that was incredible. What else are you watching? And, and I was walking through the lobby about two or three weeks ago, and this couple stopped me. I've never had this experience before. And they said, Pastor, we got an over-under. I was like, okay, gambling language. Let's go with this. What are we doing? An over-under on when you're going to talk about this documentary that just came out on Amazon. I'm like, all right, what documentary? I hadn't even heard of it. And so the long, whoever was going long on that, they were probably going to win because I hadn't even heard that it happened. And they started telling me about a documentary about those boys in Thailand. Do you remember this? It became international news in 2018. They got trapped in a cave. Remember that? So it was a soccer team called the Wild Boars. And they, what happened was, if you don't know the story, is there were 12 boys and their coach. Their coach is 25 years old. The boys are between 11 and 16 years old. After soccer practice in Thailand, uh, they went exploring some caves, which is a normal part of their lives. And a monsoon came, flooded the entrance to the cave, and they got trapped in this cave. And so we've got pictures of these boys that are right here, and, and some of you have seen those pictures before. And what had happened was, and so I know some of you are involved in this Raleigh community and in baseball and in basketball and in soccer, and you know what it's like in those communities. Once you're on a team, then you get to know the other families, you talk to each other, you text one another. Can you imagine if 12 of the kids from your team just didn't come home from practice one night? And so that's what those parents were experiencing. The head coach said that he had been away from his phone for a little while after practice, and he came back and he had 20 missed calls from different moms on that team. And so he started calling the different players. They obviously weren't answering. They were in a cave. Uh, they didn't know this at the time, but they were miles deep into this cave, and the cave was about 3,000 feet below the earth uh, where they were at. And so that, their, their phones weren't working, but he got a hold of one of the kids that didn't go exploring the cave. And he said he had gotten picked up from practice, but the other kids had gone on their bikes with the coach and they were going to explore this cave. And so the head coach rushed, saw their bikes. It was flooded at the entrance. The moms came. The way the documentary that I watched started, and there's several of them, whether you watch Netflix or Amazon, whichever streaming service of the 135 streaming services, they all have something on it. And I watched the one by National Geographics. And what I was watching is called The Rescue. It starts off with one of the moms standing at the entrance. She's with the bike. She's yelling into the cave, come home, come home with us. She had no idea at that point that it would be impossible for that kid to hear because it's all flooded at the entrance and how deep the kids are. What happened was as it flooded, they kept going further and further into the cave to try and survive so they could get away from the water. Day one, this happens. They begin searching. Volunteers come and they're searching. On day two, the military gets involved. The Thai Navy SEALs come. They start diving because the entrance is so flooded, the only way to really get into the cave was to put on scuba gear and dive in. However, even though the Thai Navy SEALs know how to dive, they weren't specifically trained for cave diving, which is a unique skill. 
One of the Thai Navy SEALs said that the water was so murky, even with their light on, that they couldn't see anything. And so they started asking, who are the best cave divers in the world? And they came up with these two guys that are British guys. They do it as a hobby. <laughs> but they've got this unique skill. And so on day six, pause. So parents, day six. At this point, it's become international news. There are helicopters, police helicopters, there's drones that got sniffing dogs going on the ground all around the outside of it. They're using robots. They've got diver, divers have come from China. There's a Chinese national diving team that's there. There's the Australian federal police are there. The U.S. Air Force has shown up. Military from a hundred different government agencies showed up. Over 10,000 volunteers, doctors, police officers, divers, just good citizens that are trying to help, civilians, they're, they're there. The police are there. It's day six and no one's even heard from their kids. Can you imagine, parents? You don't even know if they're in there, if they're alive. But on day six, they call these two British divers to come. One guy's named John, the other guy's named Rick, and they show up and they start diving. On day eight, on day eight, another monsoon comes. And the British divers called to come back home and their government said, no, you're not coming back. On day 10, at 1.6 miles into the cave, they found the boys. It was incredible. They got video, the video went on YouTube, the Thai Navy SEALs put it out on Facebook and so the, the world is rejoicing. However, what we didn't know, the conversation they were having was, finding them was the easy part. We don't have any idea how to get them out of there. And so it took six days, and we'll talk as we get a little bit more into the, the message about the plan and how they came up with the plan, but six days to agree on a plan to get those kids out, but they did. And we've got a little video from that National Geographic's documentary that we'll share with you when that happened. Even though we were the sort of spearheads this operation, there were hundreds and hundreds of people in that cave. เรามีคนมาช่วยเหลือไม่ว่าจะเป็นต่างชาติต่างภาษาต่างวัฒนธรรมเราทํางานร่วมกันได้อาจจะมีขัดแย้งกันบ้างแต่ท้ายที่สุ
I've titled today's message, Chosen for Life. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 3, and we're going to get to John 3.16, that famous verse, but we're going to take a little bit of time getting there, and we're going to start at the beginning of the chapter. John chapter 3 and verse 1, if you've got a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we do put the verses on the screen. I encourage you to bring a Bible, though, because there's no guarantee because somebody gives someone a microphone, they're telling you the truth, but the Bible's true. And so you can look at that and see, is the guy on stage saying what the Bible says? And we've been in this book of John for a couple weeks now, and I won't assume everybody's been here. In fact, a lot happens even if you have been here from one Sunday to the next. But I'll tell you, as the guy who stands on the stage, some of y'all ain't the same people that were here last week. And so what happened in the last couple weeks is week one, we spent time just talking about who is, if we're going to talk about the series of chosen, what it means to be chosen, who's the one that's doing the choosing? Who is this Jesus? Because our American culture is so messed up that just because someone tells you they follow Jesus doesn't mean they're a Christian. You need to ask them, which Jesus do you follow? And we talked about how if the Jesus you follow looks a lot like you, one of two things has happened. Either one, and this would be incredible, either God's done such a spiritual transformation in you that he's made you like Jesus, that's awesome, and I rejoice with you if that is true. Or, and this isn't good news, this is worse than a tragedy, that Jesus looks like you because you're so deceived that you've made him to look like you. That means you're hellbound. That's worse than a tragedy. And we saw then, who is this Jesus of the Bible? He's fully God. John chapter 1, 1 through 5, there's nothing that's made that wasn't made by him. Jesus made it all. He is God. But then verse 14, he became flesh. Whoa, that's big news. He pitched his tent with us. He came and lived among us, tempted in every way as us, yet never sinned, lived a life that we couldn't live so that he could die the death we deserve to die and ransom us, rescue us, redeem us, save us from what? From sin, from Satan, from death, from ourselves, from God's wrath. That's a rescue. That God would become all the world religions, make, read them all. It's all, be good, good deeds outweigh to bad deeds, get to nirvana, reincarnate enough times. It's all man's attempt to get to God. God came for you. That's an incredible rescue story. That's who he is. And last week, he sees you. He's the God who sees. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. He saw that Nathaniel was a man with no deceit. Oh, he was racist. He was prejudiced, but he was honest. And Jesus saw him and he sees you. And for some of you, that's comforting. For some of you, that's scary. And the Bible tells us why that's the case too. Because men love darkness over light. So I asked the question, and we won't get to this part of the passage today, but just on, on my social media this week and different people interacted with me about it, why would anyone refuse God's love? If John 3.16 is true, why would anyone reject that? And if you read verses 17 and 18, it tells us. Because they love darkness more than God's love. And so what's happening here in this passage? Uh, the great tragedy of studying John 3 is that people miss the end of John chapter 2. So after Jesus has this encounter with Nathaniel and we see the God who sees us, this infinite God who is fully God, wants intimacy with you, fully man. After we see that, he goes to the wedding of Cana and that's where he turns water into wine, the best wine that's ever been made. Everybody here wishes, it's the Lester Baptist, everybody here wishes you had a drink of that wine, be incredible wine. Then he goes and he overturns tables in the temple. So some people in America get this idea of Jesus that he's just this amicable, always agreeable person, just the nicest guy you ever met. So if you're a Christian, that's how you must be. And it's like, ah, oh, Jesus wasn't afraid of confrontation. Not a jerk, but not afraid of confrontation. And then you think about the American church and we're like begging people, just come to church, just show up. Maybe pray this prayer, but if you don't want to, it's fine. Jesus is kicking people out of worship. <laughs> You read John chapter 2, he's going, get out of here. You're for a consumer Christ? I ain't that Christ. Get out of here. My father's house, a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. Leave. Read it. John chapter 2, verse 16. And then a bunch of people start believing in him just because he's doing miracles. And then here's the key to John 3. You must understand John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. There's truth you can get in John chapter 3 without this, but you'll miss the point of why it was written. John chapter 2, 24, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. So he knows all people? And needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in a man. Okay, so don't miss that phrase. He knows what's in a man. Then chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a man, 
What do you think John's going to now do? He's showing us that Jesus knows what's in this guy's name is Nicodemus, but it's also true about you and about me. And what happens is Nicodemus comes to Jesus inquiring about Jesus and what, Nicod- or what Jesus does is he shows Nicodemus a bunch of stuff Nicodemus didn't know about Nicodemus. And it's real interesting if you keep going through the Gospel of John, the next chapter, John chapter 4, we'll spend a couple weeks there, there's a woman and Jesus tells her everything she ever did. He knows what's not just in a man, he knows what's in a woman. And then you go to John chapter 5, and there's this guy, he's sitting at the pool of Bethesda, and he's waiting to be healed, but he's never healed. And Jesus in John chapter 5 and verse 6 says, do you want to be healed? Interesting question to a guy who's been sitting at a pool to be healed his whole life. But Jesus knows what's in a man, and he knows what's in a woman. And so with Nicodemus, it says in John chapter 3 verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees, he's well thought of named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So not just a Pharisee, a group of 6,000 really self-righteous people. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's part of the Sanhedrin. That's a group of about 70 to 71 uh, different people, high priests and retired high priests and people to get elected into this spot. This man came to Jesus by night. Might underline that. We'll talk about why that is in a minute. And said to him, Rabbi. So later we're going to see that Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, but he addresses Jesus in a respectful title. You're the teacher. Rabbi? We, so it's not just Nicodemus, he's talking on behalf of some people, we know that you are a teacher come from God. The way we know this, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, when you see that, everything Jesus says is true. You know, do you ever talk to somebody and they go, can I be honest with you? You say, what have you been doing? (laughs) And Jesus isn't saying like the other stuff he's saying isn't true. He's going, this is really important. Jesus is God, John chapter 1, 1 through 5. So every time Jesus speaks, that's God speaking. Now here he's going, this, you need to pay attention to this. This is really important, not just for Nicodemus. Notice he doesn't use Nicodemus' name. He's talking about all of us. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. doesn't matter what you check on a survey. doesn't matter what you say you believe. It's not about a mental ascent. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus might be 70 here. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What we have here in John chapter 3 is the beginning of an unfolding here of Jesus showing us that he knows what's in a man. And John, he's fully God, fully man. We see his man, he comes, he wants intimate relationship, he's being tempted, he gets tired, he gets hungry, but he's God. Only God knows what you're thinking. And Jesus knows that about people. And then he shows, it's all people. And there's an intentional reason why of all the people that Jesus talked to like this, John picks Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man. He's Jewish. He's of the elite. Some people would even think close to sinless. He's the teacher of Israel, a Pharisee of the Sanhedrin. And then John chapter 4, not a Jew, a Samaritan, not a man, a woman, not of the elite. She's living in shame. That's why she's coming at the time of day she's coming. She's the exact opposite of him in every way, but they're exactly alike inside. And that's what Jesus is showing. And he knows what you're like inside. And that's why the people he's calling to himself are so unlikely. And that's our first point that Jesus chooses unlikely people for eternal life. Jesus chooses unlikely people for eternal life. And by unlikely, I don't just mean people that we, like if we were God, that's not who I'd choose. <laughs> because we can go through the whole Bible and do that, right? Like if you were, if you were God and you were going to pick a nation and have that nation represent you to the other nations to try and draw all people to yourself, are you going to pick a moon-worshiping old guy who doesn't have any kids, who lives in a land called Uz? Have you heard of the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> And that's what he does with Abraham. That's who Abraham was. If you're going to pick a guy who's like, I want to show people what what it would be like to be a human after my own heart. Are you going to pick a kid who everybody overlooks, shepherd boy, who's just abandoned by, like, go out there, yeah, don't worry about him, Jesse's son, David, who as an adult commits adultery. That's a man after my own heart. That's not who we'd pick. You know, I'm going to send my son, the sinless savior of the world, and so I'm going to have the right genealogy. Rahab's in that? A prostitute? 
Like, yeah, we can go like God picks people we wouldn't pick, but that's not what I mean. I'm talking about Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. And so what, what is it here with Nicodemus? Well, look at what Jesus shows Nicodemus about himself. We get told that he's a Pharisee, and so that means that he's really serious about pursuing holiness. Okay, so we can dog them out, say how ridiculous all their stuff is, but they were committed. And so God, like one of the easy things to illustrate with the Pharisees is uh, they, they obeyed the Sabbath unlike anybody you could ever imagine. So God says in the Old Testament, uh, keep the Sabbath day holy. You shouldn't work on the Sabbath day. Rest, God rested. You should rest. It's really created for you, by the way. It's for your benefit. But they made it a burden because they tried so hard to obey it. I had somebody talking to me after the first service about OCD, afraid to do anything wrong. They were OCD about the Sabbath. And so they made up rules like this. It, you're not supposed to work, so you can't tie a knot on the Sabbath. But there were loopholes. So a man can't tie a knot because that would be work. But his wife has to get dressed for worship so she can tie a sash. And so what they would do is if you came to a well and you wanted to get water out of the bucket in the well, but there was no rope tied to it. Honey, come over here. I need you to tie your sash to this bucket. Do you think that's what God intended? He created a bunch of burdensome rules with a bunch of legal loopholes for you to get around. But they were committed. They were hypocrites. But they were committed. And so we talk about sometimes a second chance, a new beginning, and we think that that would be exciting for anyone, not for a guy who's worked for 70 years to earn favor before God, to be told you've got to start over? That's who this is. And, and, and he's the teacher of Israel. That's an interesting title, isn't it, that Jesus gives him? I think Jesus is, he's not being condescending, but he's using a little sarcasm. I think Jesus is pretty sarcastic when I read the Bible. Maybe it's because I'm sarcastic. Maybe I got the own problem I'm preaching you all about, but... But he says, you're the teacher of Israel. That wasn't like a, some known title. I'm mean, Some of you, I see, I got a friend. I, who here likes college football? Anybody like college football? Any Ohio State fans? A couple, I knew, I know who I'm picking on over here. Well, I'll look this way while I do this illustration. I see you in the back. Oh, I saw that hand. I got you. I'm Baptist. I can get it. Yeah. The Ohio State University. Have you heard that? Eh, there you go. I owe somebody. No, they didn't get you. I'm sorry. I don't hate Ohio State. But I started looking into, like, do you know they actually trademarked that? The Ohio State University? And I think it was some president, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, they started telling their kids when you get introduced on Monday Night Football, we want you to say the Ohio State University. And some people say it's to set themselves apart from Oregon State and Oklahoma State. Some people just say it's because they're the best college in Ohio. They're trying to set themselves out as significant, as set apart. That's what's being said here about Nicodemus. Jesus is saying, uh, you're the one that everybody else goes to. You're the teacher of Israel. But you don't even understand the earthly stuff I'm telling you. How are you going to get the spiritual stuff? And so he tells Nicodemus, here's what he tells Nicodemus about himself. You're blind, you are helpless, and you are hopeless. That's humbling. And that's why he's so unlikely. Why do you think Nicodemus is so hesitant and the woman at the well is so receptive? Because she knows she's blind. She knows she's helpless. She knows she's hopeless. And Jesus is the answer. Nicodemus is still processing, whoa, 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 what do you mean I can't see? Did you see he told me he was blind? John chapter 3, verse 3, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he couldn't see it. And people argue about why did Nicodemus come at night and maybe some people that are very generous and they want to see the best in every situation are like, so he'd have more time to talk. The work was over. <laughs> maybe. We don't know. It doesn't say why he came at night. I don't know for sure why he came at night. Some people say it's because he was afraid that his friends who were in the Sanhedrin would find out he was hanging out with Jesus and he'd get kicked out. of. Well, he speaks on behalf of them, so I don't think that's it. But what I know for sure is that John does a real clear contrast in the Gospel of John of light and darkness. And Jesus is the God of light and life, John chapter 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, when God created, the first thing he created was light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And what you see in John is that darkness represents deception and light represents truth. In darkness, there's isolation. In light, there is freedom. In darkness, you can't see and you stumble around and you make a mess. In light, you're free. But in the light, you also get exposed. And so that's why men love darkness more than light because they don't they don't want other people to find out. Like Leslie was saying, like you walk into a room and go, if they really knew, he sees you. He does know. 
and he calls you to the light, and he's calling Nicodemus. There are hard words to be told that you're blind. Jesus gives hard words to the religious leaders all through the Gospels. He says things like this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Some of his disciples came to him and said, hey, the Pharisees are teaching different stuff than you, Jesus. Jesus says, yeah, ignore those guys. Here's how Jesus says it. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a pit. The first week I mentioned a verse and some of you looked at me like, that's not in the Bible. Uh, Listen to what Jesus says about the converts that these people make. Because this is the problem with blindness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are missionaries. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, that's a convert, and when they become converted, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves are. How can you be twice a son of hell? Like either you're going to hell or you're not going to hell. How, do you, how are you twice the son of hell? I think what Jesus is saying here is he's going, they were going to hell before. Now they're worse off because now they think they're secure because they converted to your religion. And I'm going to tell you, the American church is plagued with that. He's going, at least they could see the need before. Now they don't even think they have a need. You've made them worse off than before you converted them. They've got false security. And we're going to get into next week the passage where Jesus calls Matthew. And at the end of that, some religious guys are upset that Jesus is hanging out with those kinds of people, tax collectors, prostitutes, people. And Jesus can, and this is one of the reasons why I can argue I think Jesus is sarcastic. Because he says to them, doctor only comes for sick people. You don't need a savior because you don't have sin, Right? Jesus knows the Bible says everyone's a sinner, but they don't know their own need. They're blind. And I was reflecting on it this week, and I thought of this story that's in 2 Kings chapter 6 of Elisha with an S-H. Elijah is 1 Kings. Elisha is in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings, there's this story where a Syrian king keeps getting thwarted in his battle plans, and he, he's not sure what's happening. He thinks he has a traitor in the camp, and then somebody says to him, no, it's the man of God. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be cool if that was like your nickname in the Bible? That's the man of God. He is the man of God. That'd be awesome. That's Elisha's nickname. And uh, Elisha's been sharing this information. So they send a whole army to get Elisha. Now, Elisha had to be a bad dude for them to send a whole army. I think if they were going to arrest me, they'd be like, call up Joe. He's a retired guy. He'll go get Scott. Like, it'll be fine. But they, Elisha, they send a whole army. And then his assistant goes outside, sees this army out there, comes inside and says, hey, we're in trouble. And Elisha says, no, we're good. Those that are with us, greater than those are with them. If I'm the assistant, I'm going, all I see is you and me. (laughs) I know you ain't talking about me. And then Elisha prays a prayer. We'll put that prayer up on the screens in 2 Kings in chapter 6. It says, then Elijah prayed and said, oh Lord, please open, talking about his assistant, his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And whenever I've read that story before, I've always thought, man, it must have been amazing to be that kid and to see that stuff. And, but it dawned on me this week and I never thought of this before. Elisha had already seen that. Because how earlier did he say, those that are with us are greater unless he already had eyes to see? And see, the problem for Nicodemus is he, all he thinks, he thinks the problem, that's why they are anticipating a political Messiah. And no, I don't know, make me get into that here in America. If you, if you have a political Jesus, he is an iteration of your idolatry, just so you know. He didn't, he ignored, intentionally ignored the political problem. They're getting taxed 80 to 90% of their income. People are being killed by the Romans. You know, yeah, that's not not why I came. Okay. And Jesus might be a little different than you think. Can to save you from your sin? Can you, if you think all the problems are the surface level problems, you don't see all the problems. That might be a sign. You really need Jesus. But you have eyes to see. He opens our eyes to see our own blindness. And, and when we're blind, then we're helpless. And telling him here that he needs to be born again. Before we even unpack what born again means, what do you do to be born? Nothing. <laughs> Isn't it kind of funny that we celebrate birthdays? We make a big deal about the person that was born. You got evicted from your mom's body. <laughs> hey, you did nothing, all right? And so I, some moms, moms, could you not affirm this? Maybe some of you have like three or four. Shouldn't they celebrate you on their birthday? Right? Amen. Heard a couple guys say amen. There's some smart men in our congregation. 
Amen. Like you carried that child for nine months. You, if you had an epidural, you needed it. If you didn't have an epidural, whoa, like that's amazing. <laughs> but then we're giving credit to the baby? What? When he tells Nicodemus here that you must be born again, he's saying, not only do you not see your problem, you can't do anything about your problem. That's why when it says, for God, God's the one initiated. For God so loved the world. Not we so wanted God, he had to figure out how to solve our problem. God loved us. He initiated. We are helpless. And so today we kick off our Love Life Week. You think about the issue of abortion in our society, it's a hot topic politically. I'm not here to talk to you about politics. I'm here to talk about Jesus. I'm talking about the Bible. And Jesus is pro-life. He is the God of life. He is the God of light, and so he'll shine light on the problems. Did you know that abortion is the leading cause of death in America? Yeah, the CDC doesn't put that on their website, just so you know. So it wasn't a heart disease? Well, heart disease they've got in the high 600s, and abortion at the most conservative estimates are in the high 600s. It depends on how you look at the, what do you count as heart disease? What do you count as an abortion? As you start getting into these, one statistic uh, that I don't think is over-exaggerating had a, abortions in 2020 at just over 900,000, so almost a million abortions. That means that, let me share some stats with you. I'm not trying to, to twist any stats here, and so you can argue, maybe it's not the leading, maybe it's hard. There's almost a million being killed every year. Just in North Carolina, in 2020, there were 31,850 abortions. In the United States, there are 17,000 abortions every week. In North Carolina, there are 612 abortions every week. Leslie mentioned her story, and she's certainly not alone in this room. One in four women have had an abortion. Statistics say that of the women that have had abortions, 54% of them identify as Christians. Now, here's a tragedy, by the way. If you're part of our church... One of the reasons why a lot of people say they have an abortion is because they don't have support. They don't have a, so they can't take care of this child. You, if you're a member of our church, will never go without food or shelter. I'm not saying we're going to buy your house for you. We got enough people with houses and we got enough people with food. You are, being a part of a church is not like family. It is family. And so you do have a support system. You know, one of the critiques of people that are pro-life is you just want to get kids born. You don't care about them after. That's not true at all. If any church is being the church, that's not possibly true. To live out the one another's of scripture, that's not possible that that's, that that's what, what's happening. And so here we have, and I, and I know we're not a political church. This isn't a partisan thing, but here's, I have a, if you're a Christian and you're a Democrat and you vote Democratic, I have a problem with you. How, how can you be okay? You talk about helping the marginalized and some of you, that's why your hearts go that way. It's empty rhetoric if you're, not, if you're gonna vote for killing the most marginalized people in our culture, they don't even have a voice. So that's not, yeah, amen. I'm not saying you have to be a Republican to be a Christian, but if, and if you're a Democrat and you're not a Christian, hey, you're in darkness. I don't expect you to live by the truth. I got it. I hope that's a model for our church. Like if you know somebody who's not a Christian, don't try to moralize them. They need Jesus. They need to be saved. It's not about who they're sleeping with. It's not about how they're voting. They need Jesus. But if you're a Christian, any words you had to say to me, racism's wrong. Yeah, we should help poor. Like there needs to be better education. All that's true. But if you're killing people, you can't have eternal life. We exist to connect people to Jesus for life change. You can't experience eternal life if you don't have physical life. And I've had people cancel me this year because I've spoken out on behalf of children and say, oh, you're just trying to control women. You're against women. Listen, if a million babies were killed last year, I'm gonna guess 500,000 of them were female. I'm for them. And so, yeah, you don't have to give me a hand, but being pro-life is not a political statement by us. For some of you, it might be. It's not, though. It's a biblical statement. If you're pro-Jesus, you're pro-life. He is the God of life. He is the life, the way, the truth, the life. No one goes to the Father except for through him. You can't have eternal life if you haven't experienced physical life. And so we want children to be born, and then we take care. We have ministries all the way from the womb to the tomb, okay? And so we come alongside, whether it's adoptions, our safe families ministry, hope reigns, gateway, all of those pieces. And so the arguments that are used politically are actually not true, and they're empty. And as a Democrat, I would challenge you with this, too. If we were just having a dialogue one-on-one, which I'm open to do, buy you coffee, love to do it. You say that you're for the marginalized, but you've been saying that for decades, and what's happened? I think you're lying. Maybe you as an individual aren't, but the party I think is. And so to say that you're for the woman, 
in the scientific community, they agree, majority agree, over 70%, at the moment of conception, is a baby. So the stuff you hear on the news, that's political rhetoric. That is not true, and it's not trust the science as a child, and we're pro-life. Because we are people that are helpless. If you're born again Christian, you know what it is to be helpless And God took the initiative on your behalf so you could have eternal life. This is a way to express the gospel. And so he's telling Nicodemus, you've got to be born. You can't do that. You're helpless. Not only are you helpless, you're hopeless. How is anybody hopeless? Well, Ephesians says, Ephesians chapter 2, that all of us were without hope and without God. Why? Why would Ephesians 2.12 say that? It's because the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 said that we're all spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, when I'm trying to unpack all the verses, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God's the one who makes you alive. So here's the reality. Being born again is not you changing your mind. It's not how you check a survey. It's not some beliefs that you hold. God opened your eyes to your spiritual need. You saw your desperate situation. You were blind, helpless, and hopeless. You're dead. And I'm not talking 90 seconds in heaven. Nicodemus is probably 70. There ain't no doctor in the world trying to raise somebody who's been dead for 70 years. And Jesus is saying, you, Nicodemus, got to be born again. And that's true for everyone. So I don't know if you've been spiritually dead for 30 years, 40 years, 20 years. But if your eyes haven't been opened to your spiritual need, and God hasn't changed you so you have a desire for him, only he can do that. And it's not about where you go to church. It's not about how you vote. It's not about what you say in a survey. In fact, what you find is Jesus uses an unimaginable plan for you to have eternal life. That's our second point. He calls unlikely people with an unimaginable plan. Jesus has an unimaginable plan for eternal life. Nicodemus said, how? How is this? Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So we're really asking the question, what does it mean to be born again? And that's hard because many of you hear different things when I say the phrase. I Googled it this week, which isn't usually how I do sermon research, but I did. I Googled born again, just that phrase, over 2 billion results. And so I looked at every link, just kidding. But on the first page, listen to the diversity of this. On the first page, I saw a book by Chuck Colson, which was called Born Again. That was a title of a book, which I understand some of you have read. It's an autobiography, apparently, about his experience while coming to Christ. I also saw a link for Notorious B.I.G., and he has a song by the same title. I didn't read the book. I didn't listen to the song, but I doubt they're talking about the same thing. (laughs) There was a Marvel comic character who had been born again. Not even a real human. Born again. Sorry, Marvel people. Please don't email me. I'll just send that right to the central folder. There is a diversity of thought about what it means to be born again. You'll hear businesses, they weren't making money, now they're making money, they've been born again. And there's a comeback of your favorite team or some athlete tears his ACL and is his second chance. He's born again. It's like, I don't think that's what Jesus meant. So I jotted down a few things this week about what it does not mean to be born again. These are based on the passage here. It is not self-initiated. It's not natural, supernatural. It's not a comeback or a second chance. It's not optional. If you aren't born again, you're not a Christian. It's not something you check on a survey. It's not determined by what you say about yourself. It's not a continuous process. It's a one-time event. It's not a simple choice. It is supernatural. That's not denominational. It doesn't matter if you're Baptist or Presbyterian or Nazarene or some cult that's out there. It's none of that. So what is it? Well, it's God opening your eyes based on this passage so that you can see your need, your sin, and that you then can see who he is accurately, and you're drawn to him. How do you know if you've had that experience? The great thing is the Bible doesn't just leave us here to figure this stuff out. John writes another book, and so this is the good news about Jesus, that you'd believe in him, but how do you know if you've experienced new birth? He writes another book. It's the sequel. It's called First John, but it actually comes after, so this is like the prequel, and so you get the book, First John. First John's all about what it means to be born again. Don't have time to read every verse. Here's a few. First John chapter 3 and verse 9. No one, okay, pretty exhaustive statement. No one born of God makes a practice, not saying you're perfect, makes a practice of sinning. So if you don't have any moral change, probably haven't been changed. My practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay. 
Next chapter, chapter four, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So your angry, hateful leaders that we hold up as Christian, the Bible's going, nope. First John chapter five, verse four. For everyone, pretty exhaustive, who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Whoa, 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 we could preach a whole sermon on this. You want to know if you're born of God, you've overcome the world. Think about how American Christianity tries to cozy up with the world. If one of our own gets one of their awards, I don't care what it is, an ESPY, a Grammy, a whatever. Look, that's one of our people. They get on the, the, some liberal news channel. Like, that's one of our people. It's like, yeah, we're being accepted by the world. They don't say to do that. Your job here is not to reform. Our problem, as American Christians, we're continually trying to make heaven here. <laughs> that is so stupid, biblically. Because if you look at, like, like, think about what that would be like. Like, if, imagine, I mentioned the Bahamas earlier for vacation. Imagine you knew of some amazing resort in the Bahamas. But instead of going there, you, and you live in like some third world trash heap place, you try to make the trash heap into the resort. And what we're like sometimes with our reform of cultures, we're like, hey, move, some tra- move that trash from there to there. And if we just had a better foreman over the trash dump, or president, then, then this place would be like heaven on earth. And we keep trying to make heaven here, and our mission is to get people from here to there. This place is not your home. And the Bible says that we were born again, you overcome this place through your faith. And so what the world's supposed to be seeing is you've got a faith that overcomes all the mess that's here, all the trash that's here, and you're going, I know a better place. Come with me. But we live like, oh, let's just make this place. Maybe it's because we're so blind. All we can understand is the fleshly stuff. Do you see the real problem? Oh, Jesus. Jesus, you're different. So he had an, an unimaginable plan. But Everyone should have imagined it because it was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was promised in the Old Testament. It was patterned in the Old Testament, meaning we see examples that look like it. And it was anticipated. The problem is they anticipated a political reformer rather than a sin savior. And so I love how Jesus teaches. And we don't have time to unpack his illustrations. He talks about the wind and the water. And I thought the chosen did a great job of talking about that. And he's saying, you don't even understand natural stuff. How am I going to teach you supernatural stuff to Nicodemus? But when you watch Jesus teach, and he talks to farmers, he talks about throwing seed on all kinds of soil. He talks to fishermen, and he talks about becoming fishers of men. And he talks to investors, and he says, you know, one guy got this many talents, another guy got this many talents. And he knows in the business community, and the agricultural community, and here he's talking to a scholar. And so he tells him about Numbers chapter 21, a Bible story. And I'll just ask you this. Can you imagine if Raleigh got infested with snakes? <laughs> imagine that. Like, you've been through 2020, so you can imagine it, right? Like, <laughs> snakes just everywhere. There's snakes everywhere. People getting bit by snakes. People dying from snakes. How would you fix the problem? Tell me. Go ahead. Give me the answer. What'd you do? Run? Guns? Run? Trap? Baits? Poison? Here's what I thought. Blow torches. I thought that'd be awesome. And then I thought, and we'll talk about tax collectors next week, but wait, I pay a lot of taxes. Like you buy a house, you pay taxes when you buy the house. You live in a house, they pay taxes on you. And then you go sell the house, they charge you taxes on you. Same with the car. Like Wake County's got plenty of taxes, all right? Love you, love living here, but you're taking all of our money. And so what happens, I thought we should get some Wake County issued blowtorches and we'd go burn the snakes up. So in Numbers chapter 21, what happens is the people are wandering in the wilderness and God sends snakes, it's his punishment, and then they start to cry out. Oh, we turn to God when things get rough. They start to cry out. And he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. And he doesn't say an exterminator. And he doesn't say blow torches. I don't know why, but he didn't say that. This God's not like us. He says, Moses, I want you to make a snake on a pole. Everybody looks at the snake on the pole. They're acknowledging their sin. And by faith, they're looking to the one who's been lifted up. Jesus says it like this. a plan we would have never come up with. And Jesus says it like this. Verse 14, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, talking about himself, be lifted up. He's talking about the cross. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You didn't do anything. God's providing you a way. Oh, there's got to be more than People being rescued, don't complain. Hey, I think we should turn left. You're trying to go right. No, there's a way. You're getting rescued. Why is there a way? For, verse 16, here's the reason, for God, he's the initiator. No one turns to God. No one's ever been argued into the kingdom. 
So your goal in sharing Christ with people is not to convince them they're not going to see it unless God opens their eyes. You just tell them, hey, look at the guy on the pole. Hey, look, there's Jesus. Hey, you know what he did in my life? You're, just, you're pointing them to Christ. And by the way, they're blind and hopeless and helpless, and you are in that business. The Holy Spirit does that. Why? Because of his relentless, boundless, limitless, pursuing, so love the world. Hold up. The world? The, do you know what the world represents in John? It's never good, by the way. And theologians are like, oh, it's just the elect. Or no, it's everybody. It's, here's the, the world is everyone. Rebellious, dead, helpless, hopeless, hating God people, he loves them. You can't find a person God doesn't love. We're supposed to love like God if we're born again. He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is a rescue mission, not perishing, but instead getting eternal life. And so what you have here is that Jesus executes, flawlessly by the way, executes an unparalleled rescue. What's our third point? Jesus executes an unparalleled rescue. The rescue of those tie boys on that soccer team, the wild boar soccer team, they found them. When they found them in the cave, they were 1.6 miles back into the cave. And after they found them, one of the divers, Rick, who's the leader, when you watch the documentary that I watched, the National Geographic's one, he said finding them was the easy part. It took 10 days. That's the easy part? They argued for six days about how to get them out of there. They talked about, we'll drill a hole. They couldn't. Mountain's too thick. They said, maybe we'll just leave them in there. That was like one of the big arguments. The people were trying to say that. Maybe we'll just leave them in there when the monsoon season's done. Then dry. They tried to pump the water out. They were pumping out like 1.6 million gallons a day, and it was going down like a centimeter while they were getting it down. It's like, that's never going to work. They thought another monsoon was coming. They couldn't leave them in there because the oxygen levels were dangerously low. We've got to come up with a way. Maybe we can teach them how to dive. Some of the kids didn't even know how to swim. And the diver said, that's impossible because what had been happened that you oftentimes get overlooked in the story is that in the first day, when they were day six when they were out there, about 30 seconds into their dive, they found four people. They thought they had found the soccer team at that moment and then realized, no, these were volunteers who got trapped in here and nobody knew they were in here. And so the divers took those grown men and tried to dive with them, giving them their mask and their oxygen, and every one of them fought. And he said it was a wrestling match for 30s. They kept trying, they, didn't, they panicked. No one knows how to do this cave diving thing, so they kept trying to swim to the top, and they'd bang their heads on the rock, and they can't see anything. And he said he wrestled them for 30 to 40 seconds. The dive, in order to get these kids out, was going to be five to six hours. And so one of the divers had an idea. Let's sedate them. So he called a doctor in Australia, his name is Richard Harris, if you want to look this up, and said to Richard Harris, could we, could we anesthetize, could we sedate these kids? And he said, no, that's impossible. And he said, I can think of, exact quote, 100 ways they would die just from doing that. Asphyxiation, and he starts to go through like all these different ways. He says, he can't do that. That's what they did. One of the American soldiers said, what would it look like for the impossible to be possible? There's a way, one way, but it's impossible. But what would it look like for the impossible to become possible? And that's what they did. One of the Navy SEALs died in the process. His name was Sam Kuhan, a Thai Navy SEAL. His team said that he made the ultimate sacrifice for this mission. Got to complete the mission. Jesus we would have never even, if we didn't already know the story of the cross, we would have never thought of God putting on flesh and then God dying. A rescue mission, it says he's rescuing us from perishing. What does that mean we don't exist anymore? No, it's a parallel word to eternal life. It's eternal perishing. First Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about eternal destruction. We think destruction like it's ruined. No, eternal destruction, eternal torment. That's what we're being rescued from and from God's wrath and from our sin and from death all of it. How? Because of his love. He sent his son. The doctor said, because they had to take the doctor, the uh, anesthesiologist, into the cave through that dive. He's the one who anesthetized each one of the 12 kids and the coach. He said, you remember, doctors make an oath that they'll do no harm. He said it was so unnatural to make a kid unconscious and then to force his head underwater and tie his hands behind his back. You know what's unnatural? God's sending his son to die. An eternal, pre-existent God 
becoming flesh to die, unparalleled, executed flawlessly, without sin, tempted in every way as us, so that you would be rescued. There's got to be more than one way. There's a way. His name is Jesus. And it's so that you can have eternal life. You're dead, you're spiritually dead, but you're made alive, like that mom said about her son, Titan. Oh, and the people that just wanted to wait, four days after they actually uh, executed perfectly, all the kids made it out, and the coach, it took three days, four kids the first day, four kids the next day, four kids and the coach the last day. Four days later, a monsoon came, the caves were flooded, everyone would have died. Jesus promises he's coming back. Next time he comes back, he's coming as the judge. Not my Jesus. Well, the Jesus of the Bible is. And that's not going to be good if you're separated from him. But you can have eternal life because he says, here's the invitation, whoever. It's everyone. Anyone. He loves the world. But you got to believe. What does it mean to believe? John chapter 1. Those who believed and received, believing means receiving Christ, but not the Christ you make up. Christ of the Bible. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. If you recognize your spiritual need for a Savior, that means God's working in your life. You would never see that on your own. You're spiritually blind. That means God must be doing something if you feel the weight of your sin. You are helpless, but God's taking the initiative in your life right now. You are hopeless because you're without God, but he wants relationship with you. That's why he sent his son. And if you want to believe in him and receive him to be your savior, then I want to encourage you to call upon him right now and just pray this. Pray with me right now. You're watching online in this room. We have people in this room, last service, that trusted Christ as their savior. Maybe that's you. And it's not these words, but it's this idea, this prayer. You're calling upon Jesus. Do this. God, I know I'm a sinner. And just pray that. Pray those words. You can pray them out loud. You can pray them silently. You can pray them at Starbucks. You can pray them in this room. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I see my need. And today I begin to see you, and I want you, and I ask your son Jesus to be my Savior. I believe, and I want to receive Jesus. And if you just pray that prayer, would you raise your hand here in this room? Would you just pray to call upon Jesus to be your Savior? Just pop your hand up. And I want to encourage you to go to the next steps table. I see some hands raising. Just go to the next steps table after the service, or come see me. I'll be down toward the front. If you've already trusted Christ as your Savior, you've got reason to rejoice. People are trusting Christ. And if you, if you haven't done that and you don't have any interest in that, you've got reason to be worried because you're spiritually blind. I hope you'll keep coming back. I hope God will open your eyes.